Hi. Um, if you've never met me before, my name's Alice, and I work for Bread. And as many of you know, I've just spent the last five weeks of my life um, in London waiting for my visa application to get, like, stamped officially in my passport. And I'm back, and I have a visa. Thank goodness. Praise God, <laughs> honestly. Um, but it feels very exciting, and I'm really relieved to be back. And it's really true what they say. Distance does make the heart grow fonder. I've honestly missed bread, and I've listened to all the talks, and I've been thinking about you all. It's nice to see your faces. Um, while I was in England, I obviously had innumerable conversations about you all, about our church, about what God has done, about what we have coming up. And so I've spent quite a lot of time, as is somewhat natural for me, personality-wise, remembering, reminiscing about all that God has done so far. And in light of that, I've also had this like weird, nauseous, excited feeling all week, because I just feel like there's so much more to come. And so it feels perfect that we're in this talk series talking about who we are, what we think Bread is here to do, why we love this city. And the past couple of weeks, Ed has spoken to us about Bread being all of us, as he just mentioned in his um, announcement about prayer training. This is about me and you. It's about all of us getting involved with God's kingdom. Um, and last Sunday, he talked to us about the worship life of our church. And this Sunday, I'd love to spend a little bit time, a little bit of time talking about prayer. Exciting. I can see it all over your faces. Um, two main questions that I would love to kind of discuss explore throughout my talk. Firstly, why is prayer important for us as individuals? And secondly, does it actually change stuff? Can we actually see the kingdom here on earth, in LA, in our church? So here are some observations about Jesus's life in the Gospels. This is Luke 5. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And this is Luke 6. One of those days, Jesus went out onto a mountainside to pray and spent the whole night praying to God. I've never done that. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. And then Luke 9, this is like a little synopsis of the transfiguration. But Jesus goes away and prays with three of his disciples, and he has this encounter with the Father that completely transforms him. His face shines like the sun, and his clothes become as bright as lightning, verse 29. And the voice of God is audibly heard about him being chosen. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So, after a successful day commanding sicknesses to leave, Jesus finds a solitary place and he prays. When he is faced with the decision of who his disciples would be, who will build the church, he prays. In fact, he spends all night praying. And during a time of prayer amongst friends, he tangibly, visibly, and audibly experiences the love and pride of his Father in heaven. So Jesus' prayer life was the resource. It was like the well, the reservoir 
that he drew from to enable his public ministry. And it's where he enjoyed intimacy with his father. So the good news is, Jesus was the same to us in kind. He's fully human, and therefore he models what a human being can do when she or he is perfectly dependent on the power of the Spirit and perfectly obedient to the voice of um, the Father. But of course, he is sinless and therefore more fully human than we are. So if we want to develop a dependent uh, relationship on God, if we want to tangibly experience God's love, if we want to see the power of the Spirit um, bring forth signs and wonders similar to those we read about in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of the early church, we must, we must pray. And I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of questions that come up as soon as we dip our toe into anything resembling prayer territory. How do you pray? Does it change anything, as I mentioned before? What about unanswered prayer? What about people who aren't healed? And these are all totally legitimate questions, and it's really important that we don't shy away from them. And I'm going to try and touch on all of them as I kind of go through, so please bear with me. But properly understood, prayer is twofold. It's a relational communication with God as our Father, but it is also a kingdom-bringing weapon. It's both and. But first, prayer is relational. So this is Luke 11. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. So what better place to start when we're talking of prayer than um, the prayer that many of us were encouraged to memorize when we were young? I mean, at my high school, we actually sung this prayer every day. Um, Yes, sung and we memorized it, and it was never really particularly clear why we were doing it, but we did it. Um, But because these verses are so familiar to us, it's really easy to gloss over what is actually being said, because the Lord's Prayer wasn't actually supposed to be repeated verbatim. Jesus uses it as a template to explain how we can connect with God, what we should be expecting to see on earth. And this teaching is in response to the disciples' question in verse 1. Lord, teach us. Teach us to pray. So Jesus heals the sick, casts out demons, preaches the gospel, walks on water, feeds thousands of people miraculously, raises the dead, turns water into wine. I could go on and on and on with these stories. But at no point does one of the disciples say, Hey, Jesus, can you teach me how to make water into wine? Can you teach me how to heal the sick? The only thing they ask him, teach me, teach us to pray. So if you feel like as soon as you hear the word prayer, you're like, I don't know how to pray. This is not for me. This talk is not for me. Welcome to the club. 
because this club, the I Don't Know How to Pray Club, also includes, surprisingly, the men who spent years learning from and hearing from in real time from Jesus. And then they built the church. And personally, I find it extremely comforting and encouraging that the disciples don't know how to pray because I don't feel like I really know how to pray either. But I really, really want to see the freedom-bringing, life-changing, world-shifting, kingdom signs that they saw. So the disciples make this connection. Jesus' prayer life what he does in the public sphere. There's a connection. So they don't know how to pray, but they are eager to learn. And Jesus says, when you pray, start Abba. Our Abba, our Father. That's where you begin. And in the first century, our Father would have been um, radical. The first century Jewish listener would never speak about God as father. Perhaps the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not our father. God had very specific names, and there were very formal ways of addressing God in prayer. And if you messed it up, you could be stoned for taking the Lord's name in vain. So this is serious business. And in this moment, Jesus' declaration that you should come first and foremost to him as your father creates this mind-bending tension for the Jewish listeners. And actually, even for us, it's called an antinomy. It's like two things that seem completely opposite, that cannot be true. Both of them can't be true, and yet they are still true. So God is almighty, God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is um, the king, he is the creator of the universe, his name is worthy to be hallowed, verse two. He is also my intimate friend, and he knows the hairs on my head, and he numbers them. Each are serialized, and he speaks to me. Both are true. And for us, the weight or, and shock of calling God Father isn't necessarily comparable. But our view of God as Father has been influenced by the ineffective, disappointing, or really, honestly, for some of us, damaging experiences of our earthly parents, or influential authorities, even church leaders. I um, read recently of a South Korean woman's experience in prayer, and it made me, you know that like shiver thing that happens when you, you don't mean for it to happen? That happened in a good way. Um, but she recounted growing up that her culture had led her to believe that anyone with authority must always be met with reverence, without question. And for that reason, God's absolute authority required almost fearful reverence from her. And so during prayer, she would get on her knees and she would beg God. She would beg him for forgiveness, beg him for the miraculous, beg him for answers to prayer. And while she was doing this one day, she had this image come into her mind and it was her praying as she was. She was on the ground begging God to meet her. But then she felt this tap on her shoulder and when she turned around, she realized that it was God. And he said to her, get up and look me in the eye when you pray. This is the love of God. 
Jesus is saying, the first thing that you remind yourself in prayer always, God is not some absentee landlord. He's not disappointed in you. He's not angry. He's not this cosmic traffic cop that is just like waiting for us to mess up. He doesn't need our hard work or for us to beg. He's your father. He longs to be with you. I um, really wrestled with um, God's love, his goodness, his care, his compassion. Um, probably, I think it was probably about two years after I became a Christian. Um, my best friend at college um, took some mushrooms and had this psychedelic trip that led him to jump from a roof. And um, Joe was 22 when he died. And I found the shock and the grief inexpressible. But primarily the one thing I remember or the one thing I felt was very, very angry. I didn't get it. God was powerful. I'd experienced this power. I knew that God was able to stop this happening. I had no doubt. But he didn't. And I just felt like what kind of heavenly father would do that? And if I were to pass this mic around one by one by one by one, we would all have these stories of um, these types of traumas, unspeakable pain. Suffering and grief are real. Some prayers are unanswered. Some people are healed and other people aren't healed. And this can cause us to feel unable to pray because we just aren't sure who we're praying to. We're just not sure that God really is good or that he is loving or powerful or fair. So the reality of being a Christian is that we live in this tension that there is no definitive answer to suffering. The kingdom is now. We see foretastes of heaven breaking in. Some people get healed. We see people become Christians. We see people being set free of demonic oppression. And for that reason, we keep praying. But paralleling this, the kingdom is not yet. Pain is a reality. Some people aren't healed because Jesus is yet to return and the world just isn't really like working as it should. A month or so after Joe died, I had this really vivid dream, like wake me up vivid. Um, and it was just of me, like it was of God cradling me like a child. And I just looked like limp and lifeless and I was just weeping. But he was holding me and he was protecting me. And when I woke up, nothing, had, honestly, nothing had changed. The grief process was still in full swing. I still had very um, up and down emotional experiences. Um, I still felt incredibly angry but I did feel like God was with me, that he was close. And I felt like something shifted, something in my perspective shifted. I felt like he was grieving with me. God didn't want it to happen. He was angry too. He was angry with me. And this is not just my experience. The Bible has countless examples of God's closeness amidst the blackest of human emotion. The Psalms are a striking example of God's people coming to him, no holds barred, no religious prayer language, no weird prayer voice, and no inauthentic responses like, God's got it, 
or at least he's with Jesus. Raw emotion, intense anger, jealousy, depression, rage, despair. These people knew God is near. God is my friend. Our Father in heaven. It's easy for us to conceptualize heaven as somewhere like up there. God is somewhere in the clouds. I like to kind of think that he's somewhere in the clouds on like a massive 90s blow-up cloud couch. Did you, got, you, did you guys have those here? Or was it just an... I'm assuming from the laughter that you had them. But he's on this big cloud couch in his cloud city, and he has all of this control, and there's like loads of people around him, kind of like cloudy people. Um, but that's my imagination. But it's really easy to have these concepts of what heaven is. But the translation of heaven here is really misleading because in the Greek, it's plural, our father in heavens. And it actually is better translated, our father in the air around us. It was believed that the heavens um, were intersecting with humanity and creation. Um, heaven and earth were married together, interlocked, always connected. So when Jesus says, our father in heaven, our father in heavens, our father who is near, our father who is as close to us as the skin on our bodies, our father who is as near as the breath that we breathe in. And it's when you and I have the kind of accurate view of who God is, that he's our heavenly father, that he draws close, that one, we're able to come to him as we are. We're able to tell him things that we would not even be able to tell anyone else. We can come to him with our emotion and we're able to enjoy intimacy with him, trust with him, friendship with him. But the second thing is that we're able to pray in the spirit's power for God's kingdom to come. As I said at the beginning, properly understood, prayer is relational, but second, prayer invites the kingdom. Verse two, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. And then skipping to verse 11, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Any mention of bread, verse 2, um, immediately invokes the miraculous story of, miraculous story and provision of manna in the wilderness for the Israelites. So there is immediate kind of weighty significance here. And to Jesus's current audience, eating meat was also a rarity. So meat was really expensive. And for that reason, bread was their life source. And that meant that in ancient times, bread became kind of a symbol for life itself. Bread came to mean kind of everything, everything that I need to live. And that's why it's so powerful when Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. Because what Jesus is getting at here is, as he did for your ancestors, God will bring the manna. He will provide for your physical hunger. He will provide for your physical needs. And God is everything that you need to live. And in light of all of this, 
Don't get tunnel vision. God already knows what you need before you ask him. Instead, seek first his kingdom. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So why do we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in prayer? Because none of us know how to pray, remember? And we're not really supposed to know how to pray. The Bible says that prayer is a learning process in which um, the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. Paul says we don't really know what we ought to be praying, so the Spirit himself prays for us, groaning with sighs and words that we can't express. So the idea is not like, oh, crap, I missed, I missed that morning prayer session. Um, do I have five minutes anywhere else in my day that I could you know, kneel before the Heavenly Father. Mm, not really sure, and now I'm feeling kind of guilty, and now I don't really know what to do. Do I get on my face? Do I lie on my back? No, don't do that because I fall asleep. You know, it's not some kind of really difficult experience to work out how exactly to do it. It's also not, I have to use the exact right language if I swear when I pray. Oh my goodness, what would he think? Or if I um, am really honest about what I feel, you know, how would he respond to me? Will he still love me? Will he still like me? Is he shocked by me? Is he disappointed in me? It's not like that. The best prayer that any of us can pray is, Holy Spirit, please lead me in prayer. And then just don't say anything for a bit. And then just wait for things to come into your head and pray those. We don't need to make it more confusing. Because it is the Holy Spirit who initiates prayer. And then we just respond and carry on. It's like breathing in, breathing out. It's a two-way communication and any of us can do it. In fact, all of us are created to do it. In Acts 4... Um, Peter and John perform a miracle. And afterwards, they speak eloquently to this crowd about who has actually done the miracle through them, that it's Jesus. And it says that while they're doing this, the teachers of the law, so the professional speakers, looked on and they marveled at the way these men communicated. But then it says this, and this is like my favorite bit, so get ready. It says this, then they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men who had just been with Jesus. Peter and John were filled with the power of the Spirit. And in the same way, we are just ordinary people. We aren't sure how to pray, and we might feel like we don't have the right credentials, but we can all spend time with Jesus, and we can all be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. All we need to do is ask. Um, if I'm honest, when I first became a Christian, I, um, I didn't really have a love affair with church on Sundays. Um, and I, in hindsight, I think I was probably just a little bit overwhelmed. But there were these midweek gatherings, um, actually quite similar to city groups, but there was one specifically for college students. So food, wine, making friends, hanging out, and a context to just ask questions that you have and... Um, as actually we um, do here, we learn to pray for people in the power of the Spirit. And it was just a group as clueless as me, just meeting together and working it out. And that was my thing. That was my vibe. I was like, sign me up. I'm there. It's like 40 people. That sounds great. Um, 
But one girl in our group when I first got there had a hole in her heart since she was born. And fast forward until she was at university, and she was given six months to live unless she um, found a suitable donor. And so each week, we were like, well, we, we read in Acts that there's miracles that still happen in church, so let's just pray for you. So each week, we would pray for her. Um, and her symptoms would just get worse. So she would get more severe. Her seizures were increasing uh, and increasing in number, increasing in severity. And one Sunday, um, we were on a train ride back home, uh, from actually from a church weekend away, and she collapsed and had this the most severe seizure I've, I've ever witnessed. It was incredibly scary. And um, it kind of all died down, and she was obviously extremely tired, but she got herself to church. And um, all of us were feeling a bit defeated, if I'm honest. We were all a bit like, mm, we prayed for you every week, and maybe this stuff doesn't happen, and I don't really know. You know, we're all kind of doubting all of this, this whole experience. But we tentatively prayed for her again that Sunday, and absolutely nothing changed. But Monday morning, she goes to her doctor's appointment. It's like she had a weekly checkup because they just needed to keep an eye on her. And um, she went for her regular MRI scan, and uh, they, an they announced that the MRI scan was, the scanner was broken, we're going to have to transfer you to another hospital. So she gets in the ambulance, and she's transferred to another hospital. She goes through another MRI scanner, and the doctors are like at a loss for words. Because from what they could see, there was nothing wrong with her heart. The hole from birth, gone. Her complications, gone. And after further tests, it was confirmed there was absolutely nothing wrong with her heart. And all they could do was write miracle on her um, doctor's notes. She showed us a picture of it afterwards. And um, she was removed from the transplant list and discharged. And they saw her, they even saw her regularly for the next year because they were like, this is weird. <laughs> Maybe it'll show up again. But it didn't. And she's still healthy now. Um, and this is the power of God. This is the kingdom breaking in. This stuff can happen. And don't you want to see that at bread? Christian faith is based on an assessment of the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. But our faith grows when he proves it to us. When he shows up. Christina was healed of a life-threatening heart condition. Her life was transformed, praise God. But her healing caused a ripple effect that I could never have expected. Because we had this increased expectancy amongst our friends, we were reminded Jesus actually is who he says he is, and the stuff that we read about in Acts actually happens, and if he can do it once, he can do it again, and he can use any of us. So we would like burst, <laughs> I remember one, one of my friends like burst in on a Sunday and was like, people are going to get healed. And just, we just asked everyone, what do you want healing for? What do you need? What provision do you need? Let's pray about it. Because God's kingdom is near. And in the year of Christina's heart being healed, in a group way less than half the size of bread, we saw like 20 people become Christians, countless people healed, broken back was healed, a shattered pelvis was healed, a person's leg issue from birth was healed. And I tell you this because 
how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to bread, give the Holy Spirit to us if we ask? So a couple of thoughts before I end. Can I encourage you that if you find this stuff a little bit overwhelming, a little bit like, that seems like a mind-bending thing to process. Spoiler, we all do. We all feel the same way. But one of the best ways to become more confident in prayer is that we do it together. We're part of a community that does this. It's not just us on our own with the, you know, trying to find the right words to say. It's us. We can learn from one another. We can do this together. So there's nothing special or magical about it. We can just invite the Spirit. So if you feel like this is a bit daunting, come to pre-service prayer. We meet literally in a small room over there that you'll see from 10 a.m., everyone is welcome, and we pray that God will show up at bread that morning. Or go to city groups. You know, they're starting again soon, and we can pray for one another and, you know, share what's going on in our lives and hope that, and pray that God shows up. And absolutely come to prayer training. I could not recommend it enough. Because all we do is invite the Spirit what pops into our head, we pray it, and we realize that God actually might be speaking. And secondly, one of the greatest motivations for prayer is that we live in a universe of limitless possibilities. We live in a city of limitless possibilities. This place, our church, limitless possibilities. People in the Bible pray as though their prayer will make an objective difference. Paul, in his writings, describes us as collaborators with God when we pray. So what do you want to see bread involved in? What is it that you most desire to see God do? I just want you to think about that for a moment. What do you want, what do you want to see? Your friends becoming Christians? the sick being healed, the homeless finding shelter, people being set free of demonic oppression, an end to any sort of division that you can think of, a miraculous re reduction in gang crime in our city, those suffering with drug addiction or alcoholism being able to miraculously go cold turkey, alpha courses for people who are incarcerated. What is it that you most desire to see? Because none of this is possible, technically, but it is with God. We can just pray about it. It says in Ephesians 3 that God is in the business of doing immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. So, why don't we be a church that is known for asking? Why would we be scared or apprehensive about the scandalous and the miraculous things that God can do. Let's ask.